Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing.
I never saw it coming. Four and a half years earlier, he'd hired me to initiate change. We'd been peers for five years, and when he left to lead at another organization, he invited me to follow. He needed someone he could trust to build a team, to breathe fresh life into things, to establish best practices in safety and programming. You're exactly what we need. But on that day, the primary breadwinner in a country not our own, seven months pregnant with our second child, we were having a very different conversation. All the changes that I had championed needed to be undone. The safety measures were too stringent. The programming was too progressive. And then came the kicker. Convince everyone this is the way to go. Make sure they believe it's your idea. He was asking me to lie. A knot tightened in the pit of my stomach. What do you do when someone you trust suddenly turns on you? Thirteen years later, I still don't get it. But here's what I know. I know what betrayal feels like. And I know what refusing to compromise your integrity can cost. Things escalated pretty quickly. I was presented with a performance improvement plan, the first I'd ever received. It outlined a number of outcomes, many of which beyond my control, that if I didn't meet would be cause for immediate termination. Adam and I suddenly found ourselves in a rather precarious situation. Our livelihood and my US healthcare coverage in jeopardy and our son due within a month. Panic wound round me daily, tightening, causing my breathing and my heart rate to just race. And one day over the phone, my mom gently cautioned, you need to get a hold of yourself. This kind of stress isn't good for the baby. But the pressure intensified. Either I would comply or I was done. And it, I would be terminated for cause if I shared any of the details of what was going on with anyone associated with the organization, which included my fellow staff pastors, our life group, and the surrogate grandparents our daughter loved. Not only was I about to lose my job, but we were being cut off from our church, our community, and our closest friends. It was devastating. We welcomed Levi into the world, sold our house at a loss, and returned to Canada. I was shattered, <laughs> disoriented. I could not imagine what I had done to deserve such harsh treatment. How do you recover from something like that? How do you forgive when betrayal turns your life upside down? Maybe I should have seen it coming the second time. 
18 months ago, I wasn't pregnant, but I was vulnerable, stepping back into work after a difficult mental health leave. Uh, 14 months and the pace of crisis management, pivot, uh, pandemic pivoting alongside the regular load of leadership had exacted a very personal price for me. On my second, or my, the second hour of my first day back, I was told that I would need to do more if I wanted to keep my role or any other job. Qualifications that had never been formerly discussed, let alone the condition of my employment in my nine-year tenure, were now non-negotiables with a new supervisor. When I asked for clarification, the answer was both dispassionate and cruel. It's always been this way. You should have never been given these opportunities. I felt that familiar knot tighten in my stomach. Meeting the qualifications meant that I would have to pretend to be something I'm not. It would mean compromising my integrity. I was going to lose it all. Again. What do you do when someone in a position of trust suddenly turns on you? How do you forgive when betrayal turns your life upside down? He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Spirit is 
Lent we've been journeying with Jesus towards the cross and reading together and praying his prayers that are recorded for us in the Bible. And today we come to his final three prayers, three prayers that Jesus prayed on the cross. We begin with a prayer for forgiveness. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Father, Forgive them? Who could pray that? I'm not sure I can. How do you forgive? We know what hurt and betrayal are. We know the pain and the grief. We know the rage and the anger. How do we forgive? Whether it was last week, last month, or last year, we can't forget and we can't easily forgive because the wound is still there. We still carry it. It hasn't been healed. It's always there, sometimes submerged, but it's always there. Our deepest hurts have a habit of floating along in the river of our memory and dragging the rawness of those wounds with them, and the past becomes our present. And yet, and yet, what will our future look like if we just become more of who we are today in our unforgiveness? We'll become a prisoner of the person we chose not to forgive. We'll pollute our hearts. We'll sense a loss of God's nearness. We'll become spiritually dry. The soul pain is toxic. We're drinking poison, hoping someone else will die, and grudges will kill us. We find it hard to trust or love. We can't shake it. So what do we do? We could pray like Jesus, Father, forgive them. Jesus asks God, his Father, to forgive because he knows the character of God. He knows the heart of his Father, and God is a forgiver. As a child, Jesus learned these words from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, as far as the east 
is from the West, so far he removes our transgressions from us. God is a forgiver. And Jesus is praying for forgiveness of cosmic proportions. I can't forgive like that. But I know God can. And when he does, it starts a chain reaction of forgiveness within our wounded hearts. It's not that God is saying, just forget about it, because that's not possible. It's not as though God is saying, just excuse it, because he knows the need for forgiveness. It's not that God says, just ignore it, because denial doesn't do anything for us. God doesn't say those things because he's transparently honest. The hurts that you endured, he calls sin. The abuse that you suffered, he calls sin. The betrayal that you experienced, he calls sin. He's not saying forget about it, excuse it, or ignore it. Because forgiveness is something else. Forgiveness is costly. And it cost Jesus everything. And it gave us our freedom. We're free. Free from guilt. Free from shame. Free of judgment. Jesus has set us free. And when he does it, when he forgives, it can start a chain reaction of forgiveness within us, even in our pain. When we forgive... We offer freedom to someone else for the pain they've caused us. And when we forgive, we offer freedom to ourselves for the pain we've caused others. C.S. Lewis once said, to be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. After all, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. When you came in this evening, you probably received a piece of fabric like this. Maybe you'd like to tie a knot on it like I have that represents a knot in your soul. The forgiveness that you so desperately need from God or from someone the forgiveness that you really need to give to someone else. Father, forgive.
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
The year was 2020, and I worked as a recreational therapist in a long-term care home in Toronto. That's someone who uses leisure activities as a tool to boost someone's overall mental health and well-being, like running a program of trivia or bingo for a group of 30 or so seniors. I, however, found myself working with a population of those specifically living with dementia. So every day was a completely new experience for both the residents and me. But that year, the whole world changed. We had to make the pandemic pivot to properly care for the most vulnerable people within our communities. Imagine an individual living with dementia with no understanding of what's going on in the world outside of their homes, suddenly seeing people with masks, gowns, and gloves, telling them that they couldn't leave their little 12-foot by 12-foot rooms, all in the name of keeping them safe. I was still living at home at the time, with a dad who was immunocompromised. When my place of work went into outbreak in April of 2020, home was no longer a safe option for me. Thankfully enough, my workplace figured out a way to house some of our you know, team members and coworkers in a nearby hotel so that we could protect our loved ones. In April 2020, there were no vaccines, no accurate health data, and a whole lot of fear surrounding what could happen if we caught the virus. I worked in a home with just shy of 200 residents. And in late April 2020, around 90 of them had caught COVID. And within two weeks, more than 50 of them had passed away. These were all people I knew by name, had personal stories with, and to this day, I miss dearly. I was used to running the fun and uplifting programs with them, laughing over the current events and being a source of happiness when loneliness was all they felt. As we shifted to pandemic programming, Zoom and FaceTimes were the only ways that families could stay connected to their loved ones in times of isolation and quarantine. And on multiple occasions, I was the one holding the iPad so that a resident's loved ones could say their final goodbyes. I was still in that room after the Zoom calls ended. At this point, I was commuting from work to the hotel for about a month now, with no signs of this ever coming to an end. My girlfriend and I hadn't seen each other in a month. My family and I hadn't seen each other either. I just remember sitting in my car, you know, bro falling, breaking down into tears until I could compose myself to do it all over again. And you know what? I turned my head and I could see several of my other coworkers doing the exact same thing. I never felt so alone, abandoned, unloved. Zach, you are COVID positive. I was in complete shock, panic, numb. Now I was the one that was sick. Now I was the one who had to completely isolate. The next few hours were spent you know, making frantic phone calls to friends and families and loved ones, letting them know of the situation. Again, this was before vaccines, before we knew anything about the long-term effects that this had on us. And specifically after I had witnessed with my very own eyes, 50 of my residents pass away from this very thing. I was scared, 
I was helpless. But the worst part of it all was I felt alone. Of course, I had my family and loved ones praying over me and for me. But I had never felt so alone in my life. When I got sick, I got very sick. I was nauseous, lethargic, had no appetite. And I had such a high fever that I broke the air conditioning in my room. And when I asked someone to come over and fix it, they told me that they couldn't because, well, COVID. There were some days where I honestly didn't think I was going to make it out of there. Thankfully enough, my second floor hotel had a, had a balcony, had a window that backed onto the parking lot. My family would come down, bring some lawn chairs, and keep me company. My girlfriend, now wife, she would sit for hours outside of that window so that I didn't feel alone. Outside of those window visits and my coworkers dropping off food, I was and felt completely alone. I spent 21 days in quarantine, a full three weeks without leaving my little 300-square-foot hotel room. I spent many of my days praying to God to take this all away from me, that he would cure me of my illness, and that he would even take me out of the profession completely, in a job where I was the primary caregiver to many of my residents. I often put others' needs above my own. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice but I find no relief. And now a prayer of God forsakenness. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, why? How many of us have prayed that prayer at some point in our life? To live in this broken world of ours is so often to experience abandonment or loneliness. It's something we all seem to suffer from at one time or another. Jesus was not the first and he certainly wasn't the last person to ever feel abandoned by his family or his friends or God. Jesus identifies with us in our agony. He identifies with every isolated, abandoned, God-forsaken person there is. His is a crushing agony, a profound sense of disappointment. He's been rejected by his people. He's a man without a country. He's been sacrificed on the altar of political expediency by the Roman government. He's a victim of injustice. He is abandoned and betrayed by his closest friends. But this agony above all is the sense of abandonment by God. Where is God when we need him most? And in these dying prayers of Jesus, it seems that all creation groans with him. Where are you, God? Where is he when a child dies? Where is he when a marriage collapses? Where is he when your chemo and then your radiation therapy no longer works? Where's God when a fatal car wreck happens? Where is he when my babysitter abuses me? 
Where is he when my father is beating my mother? Where is he when my prayers are never answered? Where are you, God? The lights go out, an eclipse. We read in Matthew 27 that from noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Why the eclipse? Why did the sun go dark? Well, it's not just the moon moving in front of it. This was the whole of creation groaning and mourning. Jesus himself is becoming engulfed in an eternal darkness. He is experiencing the complete disintegration of his body, spirit, and soul. He's unraveling. It is astounding that Jesus, the maker of the world, is being unmade, that the light of the world is being snuffed out. God's absence thunders so loudly in our ears. We experience what Victor Hugo called in Les Miserables, an earthquake of the soul. And at that moment, we read, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks were split. But this earthquake speaks of something new. The dead are raised to life, even before Jesus' own resurrection. Instead of moving from the past towards the future, it seems as though the future is coming back to find us. We normally move from life to death. But here we see death changing to life. Right here in the account of Jesus' own death, there is a movement from the future to our present. God's new age of life has already broken into this decaying, dying world of ours. Jesus identifies with us in our agony and things begin to change. Even the temple curtain was torn apart. The curtain that shielded people from God's very intimate presence, from his burning holiness, from the fear or dread that that would cause, torn apart. It's no longer necessary because God is on the loose. And today, if you feel as though your world is falling apart, if you're trapped or torn by fear or hurt, by anger or disappointment, jealousy or resentment, broken relationships, by hopelessness, sin, even death itself. You got to know this. God is on the loose and he's looking for you. You see, our feeling of God's absence is never the last word in the subject. Here's God's promise to you in Isaiah 54. For a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with great compassion, I will gather you in overflowing wrath for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And maybe in your fabric, you too would want to tie another knot like me. Because try as you may, sometimes you just feel as though God is nowhere to be found. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me?
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I have scars. Mangled flesh bears witness to a dark past. I was breathing every day, but inside, I was already dead. Have you ever lost the will to fight? The will to live? My first attempt was at about age 17. I jumped from a moving vehicle. I still remember the pain I felt when my body struck the tarmac. As I laid in agony in the street, it became very clear to me my attempt had failed, and I was in even more pain now than before. I walked away with scars on my left shoulder and a determination that the next time I would not fail. I spent my days plotting my own demise, and my nights drinking, partying, anything to rid myself of this relentless pain. I needed the voices in my head to be quiet. I tried so many things, but nothing was lasting. They all seemed to offer something, but delivered nothing. Seconds felt like hours. Minutes felt like days, days felt like years, as I decayed slowly from the inside. How did I get here? What led me to this place of darkness? Then, in the midst of that, I was blindsided. I never expected to be so deeply wounded by someone who claimed to love me. We were in love and spent most of our time together. Our families were close, and in my mind, the only logical outcome was marriage. Instead, an almost six-year relationship ended with betrayal, arguments, deception, heartache, and an abortion. One bad decision led to another, and now I felt so powerless to escape. Finally, I was so severely depressed that my emotional wounds took on a whole new form. And now I felt a tangible pain deep within the recesses of my chest. It felt like I had an open wound, consciously being, consistently being irritated by everything and nothing all at the same time. Ever felt like you just can't take it anymore? I was desperate for the pain to end. I prayed to a God I did not know. One last desperate cry from what felt like beyond the grave. God, help me! Would you rescue me? Forgive me? Heal me?
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. Finally, a prayer of release and freedom. Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Sounds like the end. Feels like the end. 
And we know that because so often we've been at the very end of our rope. We've endured beyond the limits of endurance itself. And yet this is so much more. It is really a prayer of freedom, a prayer from Psalm 21 that Jesus would also have learned as a boy. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. It's a prayer of surrender into God's care. There's a confidence here, not a confidence that my circumstances might somehow suddenly change, but a confidence in God himself. He is our redeemer. He is our rescuer and Lord. He's faithful and he can be trusted. It's not all up to me. I'm free. I can trust in his care. Psalm 31 also says, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. And because of that trust, we can surrender to God's care, come what may. Jesus breathed his last. One last time, he exhaled and he died. It's as though he was giving his life breath back to the one who breathed life into each one of us. Rather than trying to hold on the way we sometimes do when we're swimming underwater to see how long we can last, this is Jesus freely returning his breath to his Father. He commits his spirit, his life, his breath into God's hands. He gives everything to the one who holds the world in his hands. We sing the song, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got everybody here in his hands. He's got the tiny little baby in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, brother, in his hands. You see, this isn't just a prayer for the dying. It's a prayer for the living. God's got you. He's got you in his hands. Nobody here needs me to tell you that life is troubled and difficult. We live there. But perhaps you do need me to remind you that God has you in his hands. He's here with you in the circumstances and challenges that you face, and you can trust him. Paul wrote to his young friend Timothy, and he said, I know the one in whom I have put my trust. And I'm sure that he is able to guard the deposit I have entrusted to him. A confidence that comes from knowing that God can be trusted. A freedom that comes from discovering it doesn't all depend on me. I think this is a prayer we all can use. A prayer in time of trouble. A prayer when everything and everyone seems turned against us. A prayer like we would use when we feel we're crumbling under incessant demands. A prayer for getting out of bed when that seems like the hardest thing to do today. A prayer for going to bed as we commit our day and the night to come into God's care. A prayer for those whom we love that are dying. A prayer for us when we are dying. After all, Psalm 31 reminds us, my times are in your hand. And perhaps for you, there's one more knot for the fabric because there's another knot in your soul. It's hard to trust God. And today, you're not sure if you really can. Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit.
Most of all, Good Friday invites and evokes a response from all of us. Jesus, who prayed about forgiveness, he invites us to allow that chain reaction of forgiveness to begin in our broken and wounded hearts, that we could both receive and extend forgiveness to another. Jesus, God forsaken, just like us, has unleashed the future into our present and God is on the loose looking for you. Jesus, who freely surrendered his life to God, offers you freedom to live today. The piece of fabric in our hands, all those knots in our soul, could you give those to Jesus? Could you bring them to Jesus? As in a moment or two, we sing and sing out loud together in worship. Could you bring that to him? I'd like you to come and join us right up here at this big cross on this big stage to let go of the fabric and the knots and give them to Jesus. And I know full well, throwing a piece of cloth on the floor It's not some sort of one and done, my life is magically different. I know that. But I also know it's a start. And it's a beginning. And it's one that we can make today the beginning of a new life with Jesus. And so when we sing, I'm going to invite you to come right up onto the stage. We may not all fit up here. and We may need to cycle back down again onto the floor. That's okay. But we'll see how many we can squeeze up here. And if you don't make it, Even as things wrap up, there'll always be time for you to come to the cross. And I know for some, where mobility will restrict you getting up here, we've placed a little cross down there so that you can go and still participate in what we're doing as we choose to let go and choose to trust God and to make a start with Jesus.
Tonight, how 